Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Luke's English podcast is made possible thanks to donations from my listeners. And if you'd like to make a donation, just click one of the yellow PayPal buttons on my website. The podcast is also supported by sponsors. The sponsor for this episode is italki. And if you'd like to arrange one-to-one lessons with a qualified teacher to work on your grammar, your speaking, your pronunciation, or English for specific situations like job interviews or exams or things, just use italki. It's probably the most convenient way to find one-to-one teachers and conversation partners. Uh, It's like shopping for an English teacher. Uh, They have little videos where they introduce themselves. You can see breakdowns of their qualifications and their experience. Also reviews by other students who've used them. It's a really complete system. And remember, when you buy some talking time, italki will send you a voucher for a free lesson because you listen to this podcast. To get the offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks. Welcome to Luke's English Podcast. How are you today? I hope you're doing fine. Um, So this episode is uh, a ramble I'm just going to ramble in this episode. I've got a few notes in front of me, but everything else is just off the top of my head. Let's see if I can keep this up for about an hour. I think I probably should be able to do that because I've got lots of things that I just want to ramble on about. So who knows, this might become a double ramble, uh, but we will see. I've done rambling episodes before, of course, as you'll know if you're a long-term listener. More recently, the sort of rambling ones were uh, where I kind of talk about news and things. And uh, but I first started doing those rambling episodes. I think it was probably after about fifty, sixty, seventy episodes of the podcast. And at that time, I had previously always kind of prepared every episode quite carefully. I used to have a notepad in those days. I used to write all of my notes down by hand. And then I would sort of record the podcast with the notepad in front of me. In some episodes, you can hear the pages of the notepad being turned. Uh, And then after, yeah, I guess about 60 or 70 episodes, I thought to myself, I wonder if I can just do an episode where I've got nothing written down at all, nothing prepared, and I just try and talk for about 30 or 40 minutes or something. I used to give myself these challenges. Um, And um, that was quite fun and quite interesting and sort of a, a... a new thing. I kind of realized a new thing about doing the podcast, which is that I could kind of connect uh, with the audience in a different way when I don't have a script and I don't have everything written down in advance. It somehow makes it more immediate. And this is also sort of central to what I'm trying to do with the podcast, which is to help you learn English, but in a slightly different way. It's a sort of uh, a different approach to helping you learn English. The idea is that I'm kind of providing you with this personalised content as if it's just a person talking to you in the normal way. It doesn't have all the kind of formal stuff 
uh, language-wise that you would get in things like BBC News reports or even just normal radio programmes where the presenters talk in a certain way. Because this is a podcast, it's so much more personal. So it's kind of like one person just talking to you. You could be sitting at a table in the pub or in a cafe or something, and it's just like having a conversation. So, you know, that's the idea. And by engaging with uh, English in a personal way like this on a regular basis, listening longer, long term, uh, that's just a very healthy thing for your English because you get this regular input of spoken English. And it kind of, I mean, you know, to, to an extent, there's the idea that if you just listen to it and you're paying attention and you kind of are involved somehow in what you're hearing, that you'll acquire language as a result. But also there's just the idea that you can notice constantly, notice bits of language, certain features, chunks of English and things like that. And perhaps it's interesting to kind of follow the, a kind of monologue like this and just sort of notice the way the whole thing is structured together. Um so that's the general idea. It's, it's, ultimately, it's all for your English. Now, obviously, as I am a um, an online English teacher, I suppose, a podcaster, and uh, people visit my website and see my profile on social media and stuff like that, people do write to me uh, with questions. And sometimes those questions are, to be honest, far too big for me to be able to answer in like one email to one person. The questions are things like, how do I learn English with your podcast? I should probably do a video about it and put it on the front page of my website. But in the meantime, I would suggest to any of you out there who are sort of listening, maybe if you're new to the podcast or something and you're listening and you're thinking, how can I use this podcast to help me really learn English? Then go into the episode archive on my website, teacherluke.co.uk. Just click episodes in the menu and you'll get the entire archive. And there are loads of episodes in there about how to learn English and advice about learning English and also specific episodes in which I'm teaching grammar, vocab, pronunciation, idioms, phrasal verbs and stuff like that. Uh, I'd probably start with episode 174 and also episode 568. Those are both specifically about how you can uh, learn English or improve your English with the podcast. But there are lots of other episodes in the archive that you could check out. Um, so there you go. That That's maybe an idea for those of you who are looking for specific advice on learning English. It's actually 10 years... Um, it's the it's the ten year anniversary of my website uh, this month. In fact, yesterday was officially ten years. Yeah, the website's ten years old, and it still looks ten years old as well. To be honest, my website does still look a bit old fashioned. It looks a bit like a blog. Do you remember there was that time a few years ago when people kept kind of referring to my website as a blog, and it's you know I kept having to say it's not a blog, it's a podcast, and. Um, I won even a few awards and stuff for the best blog. So that's the website there, you know. Um, I've worked on it over the years. I've done all of it myself. I've learned how to do WordPress publishing and editing and customizing and stuff. Learned it all myself. The website, I have to say, behind the scenes, the whole thing is held together with like string and sellotape. You know, it's like sticky tape and string and bits of rope just holding the whole thing together. It's extremely... Um, shoddy back there. It's a complete mess, I have to say. But basically, on the you know, for most of you, for those, I mean, it's for me. It's 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 a problem because like the dashboard and all the plugins I've got and stuff make the website very heavy 
for the administrator. So when I'm logged in as an administrator, it's very heavy. It takes ages to do anything. But for you guys who are not logged in, just using the website, I think it works, doesn't it? I think it does. And the episode archive is, I think, you know, it's a, it's a veritable gold mine of uh, content to help you learn English. I mean, you'll have to forgive my slightly rambling style, um, but I've kind of become known for doing this, you know, kind of going on. Um, so you'll have to forgive that. I mean, there are some of the episodes in the archive. I've, I've, st- I've tried to stop doing it these days, but there are some back there, maybe sort of between episode 200 and 400 or something, where there's quite a lot of rambling, particularly in the opening part of the episode, where I'm just kind of rambling on about, I don't know what, like the rain or something. And um, so some people might think, well, you know, when's he actually going get, to get to the point? Uh, but and certainly if, if this episode, I mean, if you don't like those sorts of rambling moments, then this episode will not be for you because this is going to be in, an entirely uh, rambly episode from start to finish. But I'm going to cover a few different topics here. Um, and let me just give you a rundown of just like little words and phrases I've got written here in front of me. So I've got the Rick Thompson report and politics, uh, my recording setup, um, uh, a book recommendation, uh, Beatle stuff, Beatle news, Star Wars, um, and um, Bill Bailey, the uh, musical comedian. And I think that's pretty much it at the moment. So let's see if we can get through, if I can ramble through those topics. And uh, if this takes, you know, a significant amount of time, it might become a double episode. So the Rick Thompson report, I've written that down because people um, have been requesting a new episode of the Rick Thompson report in the light of all of the stuff that's been going on in Westminster recently with um, the complex business of Boris Johnson attempting to get a Brexit deal or maybe... He's not. Maybe he's doing that in order to try and somehow uh, get no deal. Uh, or is he going to go for an extension? What's the EU going to do? Uh, is Boris Johnson's deal actually better than Theresa May's deal? Is it the same thing, basically, with just a couple of changes? Does it uh, provide security for the Northern Ireland situation? Or is this some kind of weird, uh, ambiguous fudge um, you know, all those sorts of questions. And what's going to happen? Is there going to be a general election? Uh, are MPs going to vote for Boris's deal? Um, oh, I mean, you know, pe- people are... Fair enough, of course, people are asking all those questions. I was actually with my parents this weekend. Um, and, um, I mean, it's it's a bit sort of tricky, uh, the whole subject of Brexit, because what happens is when we're together... Uh, we talk about stuff, you know, all the usual things that you talk about with your parents and your family and things. And then the subject of Brexit comes up and we start getting into it and it starts to get a bit kind of heated and stuff. And then someone says, oh, you know, we've got to stop talking about it because it's too depressing. And so that's kind of the issue. We did talk about it a bit, my dad and me and, you know, my mom and and my wife and stuff. Uh, my daughter's too young to talk. I mean, she obviously doesn't understand Uh, Brexit, but she'd probably say no. You know, if I said Brexit to her, she'd probably just automatically say no, because she basically says no to everything, even stuff she wants to do. So if, you know, if like, you know, she's hungry and you say, do you want to have dinner? And she'll go, no. 
and then you give her dinner and she eats it you know so you literally hold the spoon in front of her and she's going no 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 and then she eats it so you know i i don't think she's really in a position to commentate on brexit but anyway so i said to my dad look you know we in fact he said to me he said you know are you gonna record a podcast this weekend and i was thinking well you know it'd be you know i should do one on brexit really and but we ultimately decided that it was just too kind of um too depressing actually and annoying and upsetting and all that sort of thing and just not what we wanted to spend our time doing uh at the weekend um but um they are coming back soon in a few days so when they come back uh my dad and me and maybe my mum as well maybe I'll do one with my mum separately I don't know uh maybe we'll do uh, a podcast and then publish it but um um, you know, just the subject of Brexit is just very complicated. I mean, some things seem to be positive about it, like there's a potential for uh, maybe a slight potential for um, a second referendum, but I think it's very unlikely. There was a massive march at the weekend, a huge protest about Brexit, uh, and the march was all in support of a second referendum. And obviously there is there are arguments, you know, against that. Of course, there's tons of pushback uh, in terms of you know attitudes and stuff, Brexit is incredibly divisive. So you've got almost a fifty-fifty split in the country between people who quite passionately believe we should stay and just keep things as they are because things are really quite good at the moment in terms of our relationship with the EU and any deal that we're going to get is not going to be as good as what we've got now, which is you know a fantastic deal actually. Um, so. Right, the 50-50 split. So there's like 50% of the nation think it's, you know, a a bad idea, basically, and that we should, um, you know, just call the whole thing off. Uh, It's going to be very costly and all the other reasons. And then 50%, you know, believe that it's all about taking back control and that somehow this is going to be good for Britain. But it's actually, you know, so complicated because you've got all these different possibilities where you have things like, uh, you know, some kind of deal, What, what which deal would it be? And, and analysing Boris's deal at the moment, and then the prospect of no deal, and then the prospect of a general election, or maybe a second referendum. And then what do you do after that, you know? And uh, and then maybe even just scrapping the whole thing completely. Um, it's, it's, it's like we're at a, a horrible crossroads and it's log jam you know it's kind of like a traffic jam and uh it's very very hard to tell what's going to happen next um uh with my family we all agree that we don't trust boris johnson that's just our personal view but i mean it's based on a lot of precedent in terms of his dishonesty in the past in, in not just in politics but in other work that he's done he was fired from several jobs for for lying as a journalist and and other things and there's this sense with him that uh, you know no one's really sure what he's doing. Is he is he playing a game in order to try and seal no deal? Um, why why do people want no deal anyway? And there's a suggestion that there's it's all about sort of investment banking and hedging investments against the 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 uh, outcome of no deal Brexit and stuff like that. Anyway, politics. Oh man, 
really. Like um, sometimes I, I really, like politics is difficult because I know every time I talk about it, I really don't mean, I don't mean to rub people up the wrong way. I really don't because I'm sure there are people out there who disagree with me. I'm not trying to uh, ruffle any feathers or rub people up the wrong way. I'm really not. I'm just talking about a subject that is very close to home, you know, and obviously on this podcast, I talk about British things. Uh, and uh, Brexit is naturally a big part of that. And I can't help having my own personal views. I feel strongly about it for personal reasons, of course. So, you know, when I talk about it, I can't help, you know, giving my opinion. Um, but yeah, politics is always a, a tricky one because it is very divisive. You know, they say don't never discuss religion or politics at, uh, you know, a dinner party or something. It's probably true also on the podcast. So I don't mean to uh, be, you know, I'm not trying to be controversial and, and say things that people are going to disagree with. I'm not trying to preach. Okay, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just sort of giving my opinion. I think I'll move on from Brexit to what's next on my list. So my recording setup. Um, okay, I'll fly through this very quickly because this is probably just me self-indulgently talking about my all of my kit. But someone did write to me recently. I don't know which platform it's on because obviously I publish uh, the podcast uh, on my website. It also goes up onto YouTube, by the way. All my audio episodes now go up onto YouTube and you can get the uh, automatic subtitles, the auto-generated subtitles there, which are mostly accurate. It's actually pretty good. They're, when it's just me talking on my own, they are probably about 99% uh, accurate, which is really great. So... Um, Anyway, yes, so the various platforms. So people get in touch with me on lots of different platforms. So I can't remember where it was, but someone asked me to explain uh, what the microphone was or what my setup was. So I'll go through it very quickly. Recently, I bought a new um, mixer, right? A little one-channel mixer by a company called Behringer. Um, and um, so that has kind of uh, boosted my sound a little bit recently. I don't know if you could tell. I've, I've now, though, I have like so many more dials and switches and things to deal with. So sometimes I'm kind of like playing with the dials as I'm recording to try and get the right level. So I'll go through the setup that I've got going on here. I'll keep it brief. Okay. So the most important thing I have in my podcast recording setup is a device called the Zoom H5. Zoom is a company that makes audio recorders. I think it's a Japanese company not sure. Uh, And they've got a a range of different audio recorders. I used to use the Zoom H4, but uh, I upgraded to the Zoom H5 a few years ago. And the great thing about this is that, first of all, it records the audio in a good file format, in a WAV form. So it's a high-quality audio file. It records it directly onto um, an SD card, a memory card. And that's good because um, it's very dependable, It's extremely reliable. If I was to record my uh, audio episodes live into my computer, into something like GarageBand, there's always the possibility that the software is going to crash or that something's going to happen in my computer and it's going to go wrong and I'll lose everything. So I don't like to record straight into the computer. Instead, I go into one of these audio, uh, like solid state audio recorders. I find them to be more trustworthy and also just really handy for, for doing the podcast. So this thing is just plugged into the, um, elect, you know, it's just plugged into the uh, mains. So it's got its power supply from the mains. And uh, the cool thing about this is that it's got several inputs. So this, 
in its normal settings, it's got two inputs that will accept uh, XLR cables. Those are microphone cables. They're kind of like quite fat um, plugs that go in the end with three pins, um, the sorts of things that are used on stage with microphones. So you can connect a microphone straight into one of these things. Um, And you can also connect, in, in the case of what I'm doing now, my computer straight into it too. And it will record both of those tracks separately on two different tracks. So you end up with two files, which you can then blend together later on if you want to. And you've got volume controls for both of those tracks. So you can kind of make sure that you're not playing too loud or that you're not too quiet. You can kind of monitor the recording as you go. And that's brilliant. That's really, really useful. And so uh, going into that, I have my, I'm using uh, a Shure SM57 microphone uh, with the larger windscreen on top and I found that this windscreen it's quite large and thick and it helps to deal with plosive sounds. Plosive sounds are those ones that come out when you do things like the P or B sounds when large amounts of air come flying out through your mouth. Those are plosives and so microphones often will kind of explode. They'll go when you do a plosive sound unless you've got something covering the microphone. Some people use a, a pop filter And uh, I like to use windscreens, just like sort of a a muffler that goes over the top of the microphone. The Shure SM57 is an industry standard microphone that's used um, across lots of different applications. It's used on stage for miking up people's voice. It's used for miking up different instruments, drums, guitars and things like that. It's used in studios and most of the uh, recorded music that you've listened to will have been recorded on a Shure SM57 or maybe an SM58. They are the most standard uh, microphones for most recordings and live live broadcasting uh, on stage and in studios. Uh, it's not like a it's not a studio quality microphone for the radio. Those are usually kind of condenser microphones, large sort of ribbon condensers. Uh, this is a um, dynamic microphone. And one of the cool things about these Shure microphones, the SM57 and the SM58, how geeky is this? Very. Um, is that they are really tough. They're really, really solid. And you can drop them on the ground and they're absolutely fine. You could hammer a nail into a wall with one of these and it would be fine. So they're quite sturdy and good for traveling around and carrying around. So this goes, actually, before this SM57 goes into the uh, Zoom H5, I have something else in the in the setup, in the chain. So the microphone goes into something called a cloud lifter um yeah it's the cl1 mic activator uh, cloud lifter which is like a little blue box and it just boosts the um signal of the microphone and actually i use that one with my other microphone which is the zoom sm7b which is a really great microphone um with a lovely sound but it requires a lot more power so i use the cloud lifter to boost the power to the microphone And it helps, you know, why is that good, Luke? Well, when your microphone is getting more power, it means that the signal is stronger, which means that there's less hiss in the background. Hiss is like ambient noise, like this kind of shh kind of sound. That's hiss. And so when your microphone is getting more power, there's basically more more signal and less hiss, which is a good thing. It, It means that, you know, you've got more quietness in the background, which basically makes a better recording. Um, so I'm not using the SM7B, which is a, a wicked microphone that was used by apparently by Michael Jackson when he recorded Thriller. It was also used by David Bowie 
um, on his last album. So this is a, another standard microphone. You see it a lot. For example, Joe Rogan uses this one. Um, I'm not using that one because I wanted to use just a, a microphone in my hand. I wanted a, a handheld mic. So that's why I've got the SM57. This is fascinating, isn't it? So from the um, so the mic goes into the cloud lifter, which gives it a boost. And that then goes into the mixer, which has just got a one channel on it. And it just the, the cable goes straight into the mixer. And then I can control, um, for example, EQ. I can give it more treble like this. I can go really trebly. And that sounds a bit too much. This very It's like snakes. Um, so I can give it a bit more treble and also bass. I can go all the way up on the bass like this. And then I, I sound like I'm very bassy and just bring that back there a bit. Okay. And also I've got things like compression. So compression is on max at the moment. If I remove the compression, I'm going to get quieter. So I'm much quieter now. There's no compression. What com- I'm going to move the compression back up again. And compression is the thing that makes me sound like a radio DJ. Because radio DJs use a lot of compression on their voices when they do radio uh, presentations. Um, so compression basically means that it sort of squashes the audio. Imagine the audio is like a big wave, like that going up and down, a big wave. Compression takes that wave and squashes it. So it's all sort of normal, normalized, I think. So it squashes, for example, the extra loud bits become a bit quieter and the quieter bits become a bit louder and it all becomes at the same kind of frequency and it's like one single band, which you can then um, make louder. So compression just kind of gives it that professional sort of quality where everything sounds full. It sounds like there's a lot of presence to the sound. Okay, so then from the mixer, I go into the Zoom H5 and that's how I record all of the noises. There you go. So I hope that answers your question, whoever you were uh, out there in podcast land asking me about that. Um, I've got a book recommendation for you. Um, recently, I read this book, which I had read before, but um, I had been thinking about it. So I decided to uh, find myself another copy of it and read it again. And I wasn't disappointed. In fact, I think I found it even more interesting the second time round. The book I'm talking about is called One Train Later by um, Andy Summers. Andy Summers was, and sort of is, still is, the guitarist in The Police. You know, that band with Sting and Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers on guitar. And um, Andy Summers wrote this book, I think it was published in 2006, and it's basically his memoir describing his life in music, starting with how he learnt the guitar growing up as a child, and uh, how he got involved in local bands um, in, I think, where was it, Bournemouth, uh, on the south coast of England, and he sort of ended up becoming a professional musician. And um, Andy Summers had an amazing career, and it's really interesting uh, in his book. So the book is great for several reasons. First thing I'll say is basically rock biographies, okay? Rock biographies. I don't know if you're like me, but I love rock biographies. I love reading those stories of these guys who, uh, for some reason, got obsessed by music, probably in the 50s or something, and and they all learnt guitar on, like, these terrible little acoustic guitars, and then they got sort of um, into bands, and the whole thing becomes like a snowball as the band rockets to success and the world changes and then drugs get involved and there's the music industry issues and all that stuff and all the personal issues between the band members. 
Uh, there are so many really great stories about rock musicians and rock bands. And I've read loads and loads of these rock biographies about sort of anyone and everyone I can lay my hands on. But I think this is one of my favourites. It's this one. And the other one is um, is uh, the Miles Davis um, book, uh, which is written by Miles Davis. And that is an incredible uh, story, an incredible book, all written in his voice. I think he 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 worked with a writer called Quincy Troop. I think that's how you say his name. And apparently Miles basically kind of like just talked to Quincy and Quincy kind of wrote it all down and so the story is written in Miles's voice. So Miles Miles Davis used to speak kind of like this. He had this whispering voice. And he used to swear a lot and he's like yeah, when I heard that music it was all up in my body like a motherfucker. Like <clears throat> oh, I can't do that voice for long. But that's what it, Miles Davis's book is written like that, all in his voice with all the, his kind of his dialect and, and slang and stuff. But anyway, One Train Later is my other favourite one because, okay, two reasons. One, Andy Summers is just a really good writer. He's able to write in a very clear and very engaging and entertaining way. And I think this is exactly what you need from a book that you're using to learn English. You need a, a book that flows from one page to the next. The prose is very easy and very natural and very evocative. It's He, he really does paint a very vivid picture of what it's like to be either a, a musician uh, who's sort of dealing with great levels of success or also a musician dealing with great levels of like... Um, uh, failure and and, and um, lack of success. So he's a great writer. And I think if you're learning English with a book, you, you want something that allows you to read more and read more quickly. You don't want to get bogged down in like complex, impenetrable uh, writing. You want something that flows quite easily, a sort of a page turner. And this one does. And that doesn't. that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean it's kind of... Um, um, or just you know, superficial. It's actually quite deep, and and it goes into quite a lot of depth in his personal life and his feelings about uh, what happens when you become one of the most successful musicians on the planet. Um, so there's that the the writing style, which is really helpful, I think, and also there is um, the fact that he grew up all the way from the sort of very beginning. In fact, he really became famous quite late. And Andy Summers was of the generation that kind of started playing rhythm and blues music and rock and roll music in the early 60s and late 50s, and then sort of moved into uh, playing rock music with rock bands, that psychedelic music, experimental forms of music, and taking it more avant-garde, maybe with some jazz influences and progressive rock. And he really sort of went through every single genre change which is the other fantastic thing about this story is that it's a really good sort of history of guitar music from the point of view of a British musician. And it goes through every phase, you know, the kind of skiffle period, the kind of folky, kind of um, jazzy, folky skiffle stuff that people were doing before rock and roll arrived. And then there's rock and roll and rhythm and blues and uh, the blues and uh, jazz and, and all that stuff. And then all the way through progressive rock into punk then, because obviously Andy Summers, uh, although he had some success in his career in the 60s and early 70s, 
by the sort of mid 70s, his career was really um, not going anywhere and he was suffering and he, he was broke and stuff like that. And then uh, punk sort of um, came along and revitalized the music scene. And he got involved in this band with Stuart Copeland and Sting, which later became the police. And then there was this whole massive explosion in his career. And at one point, the police were probably the biggest band in the world. And so you get this incredible roller coaster of narrative and also just a history of, of music as well. It's a fantastic book. It's really easy to read, and I highly recommend it. One Train Later by Andy Summers. You should be able to get it in any decent bookshop and probably a few uh, rubbish bookshops as well. It's well worth a read if you like a good rock and roll biography. And it's one of those books that you might not sort of expect to be um, one of the best. You know, you'd think, well, which one's going to be the best? It'll be like the the sort of the uh, the Led Zeppelin book or something like that. Uh, but actually, this one is, is fantastic. On the subject of music, I, um, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And it's, it's quite an interesting time for Beatles fans. Um, because this year is the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road, the official last album that was ever recorded by the Beatles. And so the sort of 50th edition has come out. And it's full of... Um, uh, interesting remixes by Giles Martin, the son of um, um, George Martin, of course, the Beatles producer. So Giles Martin is now part of the sort of Beatles family, and he is their official sort of remixer and and curator. And um, so there are some really interesting things. There's a full extended special edition, which, which I think has about three discs, three vinyl discs, three different sort of selections and it includes lots and lots of outtakes and interesting morsels and different sort of um, takes of songs that we've never heard before and you, you get the chance to listen to isolated parts it's fascinating and also we it, it seems that the the general narrative about uh, the Beatles at the end of the band's career seems to be changing a little bit for several reasons. One of them, I think, is because of a new recording that was unearthed. And it's a recording of a meeting between Paul, George and John. I think Ringo was away at the time. And they're talking, it's around about the time of Abbey Road, which was actually the last album they recorded together. And they're talking, and now the official story is that there, there was, it was very bitter at the end, that especially the Let It Be recording sessions were very bitter. There was lots of fighting and arguing, and they, they hated it, and they hated each other. And um, it was horrible. And then they decided to kind of club together for Abbey Road, but they all knew it would be the last album. So there's this kind of sense that they were going to do one last thing and that would be it. And then they'd wash their hands of it. But according to this, the recording of this meeting, it's not quite the case because they were actually discussing recording another album. They were talking about plans for um, another one. And all of them seemed to be quite enthusiastic about it, including John. So this is interesting. Um, that it seems that it wasn't all over at that point. So interesting change in the story. And the other thing is that um, Peter Jackson, yes, the guy who directed the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson has been given access to all of the master tapes that were that were recorded during filming of uh, the Get Back sessions, which then later became the film Let It Be. So Peter Jackson is known now for being able to restore old and uh, probably damaged uh, video footage because he did that film. Oh, what was the film called? It was about World War One. Um, 
They will. They shall never grow old. I think it's called Peter Jackson. They shall not grow old. Okay, so they shall not grow old is a film that was uh, made by Peter Jackson last year. I think maybe the year before, and it's about World War One, and it's made using old footage which has been kind of um, um, cleaned up digitally. So they've managed to do lots of things. So it becomes sort of very clear, almost like modern footage. And they've taken audio and spliced it together. And they've actually recorded, um, like, uh, they've they've recorded audio backing tracks for parts of the video that don't have audio. So they've recreated the audio and created a film which has tons of footage of World War One that's incredibly um, fresh looking, like it's new footage. And so anyway, the, the part of that is the digital technology that they've used to kind of clean up these old uh, videos. And um, so Peter Jackson is going to do the same thing with the videos from Let It Be, which is really interesting. And there's a lot, a lot, of, there's tons of stuff, tons of audio as well. And apparently, uh, like the, the other recording I talked about, it seems that the video footage, in fact, tells a different story than the one we've had. The official story has been that the Beatles didn't get on. It was miserable. But apparently the footage shows a really different kind of situation where they're getting on. There's a lot of fun, enjoyment and joy going on. So I can't wait for that film to come out. I think it comes out next year. So I'm very much looking forward to it. I can't remember what it's called at this stage, but I'm really looking forward to it. Talking of films, he said, making a clumsy link between two items in his list. Um, the new Star Wars uh, trailer dropped today. That's right. It's the, the final trailer for Star Wars Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker. Okay, so I have to do the obligatory Luke's English podcast Star Wars chat here, folks. Okay, uh, you know I'm a Star Wars fan. Some of you are too. I have to talk about it. It's just close to my heart. I'm sorry. Now, what's going on with Star Wars? What's happening with Star Wars? Now, okay, so I'm, I like it. I just love uh, immersing myself in the world of Star Wars for an hour or two and just the pure entertainment of it and the, and the um, nostalgia value. I just get a kick out of it. I really enjoy it. And um, I liked The Last Jedi which is not something that you hear people say very often, is it? It's not. But I admit I liked it. When I went to see it the first time, I hadn't seen any press relating to it at all. I hadn't seen any comments in any pages on the internet, no reviews. I saw it the first day it was released in France, which was two days before it got released in most other places. And I'm not saying that because I'm bragging that I got in early. I don't care about that. I'm just saying that I hadn't read anyone else's comments about it before I saw it. So I went in and at that time, my wife was pregnant. She was going to give birth to our daughter at any time. So I had my phone in my hand throughout the entire film just to check in case something happened. Um, And I was ready to just run out of the cinema because obviously I have my priorities. Okay. Um, so I, I, it was kind of a strange time. I remember watching the film and on several occasions, uh, I was welling up and the tears came down my cheek, uh, on several occasions. And I laughed in the moments of comedy, even though they are very clumsy. Uh, you know, if you 
put those moments into the Star Wars canon, when you realise this is an official Star Wars film and they're making jokes like that, I can see how people got upset. I didn't mind. I don't care. I've got, I, I feel like I've got nothing to lose when it comes to Star Wars. I feel like I've had all of, I've had my cake with Star Wars. You know, it's been great. And I, I just don't know if they can ever make it truly great again. But I don't care. I'm on. I'm on. I'm in for the ride. It's like a sort of. Um, it's like I'm sledging. It's like I'm sledging down a hill. I'm sitting on a sledge. You know those things that you ride in the snow. It's made of wood, and you sit on it, and you slide down a hill when it's covered in snow. Sledging. I feel like I'm sledging when it comes to Star Wars. It's kind of like it's gradually going downhill, but I'm enjoying the ride. That's how I feel about it. So, the Force Awakens. Um, was a kind of a nostalgic nostalgic romp through the Star Wars universe with certain mysterious new elements, including the character Rey, who apparently is Force-sensitive. Oh, I'm feeling a bit Force-sensitive today. (laughs) It's like, I'm not going to come and play football. I'm feeling a bit Force-sensitive. She's a bit Force-sensitive. We don't know why. Who is she? Why is she so strong in the Force? There's this emo-gothic guy called Kylo Ren, who is Han Solo's son, and he's a bit of a naughty boy. He's turned to the dark side. And Luke Skywalker's disappeared. What's going on? Okay, so and it was it was basically a rehashing of the storyline from the original film, if you think about it. I'm not going to go into the details, but it basically is exactly the same as A New Hope with a few other bits and pieces thrown in. And then you got The Last Jedi, which just totally divided opinion. Critics liked it, but everyone else seemed to think it was shit. Well, not everyone else. A lot of people enjoyed it, but there was a large contingent online who passionately hated it. And so there's tons of YouTube videos of people ranting against it. And I can understand. I totally can, actually, now in hindsight. I can understand why they would find it annoying that throughout almost the entire film, there was basically a low-speed space chase between two massive ships or fleets of ships that are going really slowly, but it's like they can't catch up with each other. So it's just like nothing's happening. They're just floating through space really slowly until eventually the big uh, evil ship manages to blow up one or two of the other ones. And then they've got a race against time and they have to escape down to a planet that, oh, no one noticed before. And, you know, it's weird, bizarre storytelling. And there's that whole section in the middle where... um, what's his name, Finn and Rose go off to that sort of casino planet and there's lots of very bad CGI and then a weird sort of horse uh, escape sequence and it's all a bit Disney and that's the worst part of the film. But then there are some really cool parts as well, like there's the sort of stuff where um, Ray and, uh, what's his name, Kylo, uh, end up killing Snoke and having a big sort of acrobatic fight with those guys in red costumes and one of them gets chucked into a sort of a blender and he gets all chopped up which is pretty good and another one gets his head chopped off and the room catches fire and then they have like a sort of an argument and that's pretty cool and also I quite like the stuff with Luke Skywalker I enjoyed the fact that he is kind of a cynical Jedi that when you when you really think about the Jedi they are responsible for creating all the Sith and for the creation of Darth Vader and they are sort of blind and a bit arrogant and all that kind of thing and they don't own the force um and that if you 
that the, essentially the force is all about balance. It should be anyway. And, um, you know, I kind of understand that, but still I can understand why people didn't like it. Um, and um, so now here we are. We're back with uh, part three, episode nine now, which is a, supposed to conclude the whole Skywalker narrative arc. It's going to conclude in this episode. So in terms of the Skywalkers, we've got obviously Kylo Ren, who is Ben Skywalker, Ben Solo, but he is a Skywalker because his mum is Princess Leia, who apparently is still alive in this film, but I don't know how they're doing that considering Carrie Fisher uh, died um, just after the last film was released. Um, Apparently they're using old footage and somehow repurposing it. So Kylo Ren is a Skywalker. Then, of course, there's Luke Skywalker, who seemed to die at the end of the last episode, The Last Jedi. He sort of disappeared. Maybe he'll be back as a Force ghost or something. And then there is, of course, um, Anakin Skywalker, um, Darth Vader. So I don't know if we're going to see Darth Vader in the episode, but it'll be interesting to see. But the episode is called The Rise of Skywalker. So... Does this mean Kylo Ren is going to become a good guy in the end? He's going to become... He's, but he's not really a Skywalker, is he? Maybe it's going to be something about Anakin. I don't know. Could it be possible for the guy, the actor who played Anakin, could he come back? That would be good. I think that would be good. Um, I don't know how they would do that, though. And um, maybe Ray is a Skywalker after all. We've, we don't know. But the new trailer... I mean, there are... I guess the thing we already knew was that the Emperor was back, right? Because at the end of the last trailer, there was like the Emperor's laughter, (laughs) his cackling laughter in the background. It's like, oh my God, the Emperor is back. So, well, what's going to happen with this new Star Wars film? Is it going to be any good? Is it possible to rescue the Star Wars franchise after the sort of weird and enjoyable for me, but slightly odd, unconventional last episode and the fact that the first episode brought up these questions that still haven't been properly answered um what's his name who's the director jj abrams so one good thing is that i think he's a good director i trust him he's able to handle large action set pieces he's very good at sort of you know creating a sense of mystery but that's kind of the problem with him as well is that he's good at setting up a a mystery that everyone needs to solve like with The Force Awakens, it was like, who is Rey? Who are her parents? Who is Snoke? What's he actually doing? You know, all this stuff. There are tons of theories. He's very good at creating a mystery, just like he did with the TV series Lost. Where everyone's like puzzled and trying to work out what's going on. But he's not so good at tying up all the loose ends and sort of resolving a story in a conclusive way. Um, so that's a, that's a bit of a worry. Maybe it's going to be a muddled fudge of an ending. Uh, we don't know. But um, I'm a bit concerned about that. Um, what else? So the rise of Skywalker, which Skywalker? We don't know. The The Emperor is back. And there are various predictions about how the Emperor could come back. Maybe he is, um, maybe he's a clone, because I think there is some precedent in terms of the like books or something that, or comic books that the Emperor clones himself. And so he returns like that. Or maybe the Emperor, somehow his uh, force essence has been sort of kept or it's moved to another person. Maybe he's able to like move his essence to another person. And there's all this stuff about Darth Plagueis who managed to avoid, he managed to cheat death or something. So maybe he's learned how to cheat death. 
what happened to the Emperor? At the end of Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader throws him sort of down into the into the middle of the Death Star and he seems to blow up, but we don't actually see his body. So it, apparently he didn't die, or maybe if he did die, his Force essence has remained somehow. But it seems that he's still around because you hear his voice, right? So maybe he didn't die. Now, the best um, theory that I've heard about this, my favourite theory that I've heard is uh, by those guys from Red Letter Media. I don't know if you know Red Letter Media, but it's a YouTube channel and they do movie reviews and they're kind of a group of schlubby, uh, geeky American guys from somewhere up in the North Midwest, like somewhere near like Milwaukee or something like that, Wisconsin, somewhere like that, you know. And uh, these kind of schlubby guys who drink beer and they discuss films, but they're very funny And also, they're often really correct, really accurate in their predictions. And I love this prediction that they have of how the Emperor might have come back. So I'll just sort of give you the rundown of what their prediction is. So the Emperor apparently died in the uh, second Death Star when he was thrown into like a big, like a lift shaft or something by Darth Vader. And then the Death Star was destroyed, of course, by the rebels. In the film, the Death Star seems to just turn into dust, right? It just explodes. But it seems in the trailer that there's bits of the Death Star lying on some planet. And it looks like a planet with trees on it. There's there's water there as well, but it could be uh, the moon forest of Endor, which is where the second Death Star was uh, when it was destroyed. So maybe parts of the Death Star crash-landed on the moon forest of Endor at the end of Return of the Jedi. Now, what do we know about the moon forest of Endor? The moon forest planet? I'm saying the moon forest, the forest moon. Luke, what are you talking about? The moon forest of Endor. Please disregard every time I said the moon forest of Endor. And please replace it with the forest moon of Endor. Okay, because the moon forest of Endor doesn't make any sense. A moon forest would be a forest made out of moons which would be very strange. Like you're walking through a forest and it's not trees, it's just moons. That's a moon forest. So no, no, not a moon forest. A forest moon. It's a moon that's a forest. So that's where the Death Star may have crashed. Now, what do we know about Endor? Well, we know that it's home to loads of Ewoks. Okay, so the theory goes like this. Maybe what's happened is that the Emperor, right, he's like not dead, but he's in the remains of the Death Star on on Endor. He's like badly injured, physically very hurt, but he's using his force powers to keep himself alive, to preserve his life. But he's very weak and he's really down to just like his essence in, in physical form as well. And he sends out like evil, bad force vibes around him and he corrupts the local um, uh, Ewok population. And the Ewoks come to kind of uh, worship the Emperor and they build a sort of primitive throne for him in the remains of the Death Star. And they come in their droves and they worship him. You can imagine them kind of, you know, doing their kind of chanting and they're bowing and worshipping, you know, the way Ewoks do. And they worship him and he kind of feeds off them. 
He, they make sacrificial offerings to him of other Ewoks, and he kind of feeds on the Ewok and if Ewoks, and he also feeds on them through his force power, and they become kind of like, uh, uh, they become all sort of uh, emaciated and thin and like evil and dark, and they've got like glowing red eyes, and they're all they've got like dark skin, and uh, they become evil Ewoks, and and that's how he kind of like uh, manages to to build up his power again over a forty year period, and then he comes back and he's kind of like returned to his full strength because of his Ewok like cult that that has been nurturing him back to life. I mean, they're not going to do that in the film, but oh my God, I hope they do. I think that would be amazing, don't you think? Like, that could be genuinely really quite scary. It could be really creepy and scary, and and I think it would be brilliant, but they're obviously not going to do it, which is a pity. But I've no idea what they're going to do. I mean, the Emperor's back, and so what? I mean... <laughs> I mean, does it feel a bit like desperate sort of storytelling? Like, come on, you just bring back the Emperor. Bring, let's try and get this thing back on track. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm excited and I can't wait to see what happens. And as I said before, I feel like I've got nothing to lose. And so uh, if, if, if it's an absolute turkey, I, obviously, I'll be disappointed. If it's completely terrible, I will be disappointed. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring the final chapter in this particular Star Wars story. And I, I just really hope that J.J. Um, uh, Abrams doesn't spoil it. Um, what did I... I saw something on... I think it was on Twitter or YouTube. Someone wrote a funny comment. Um, and the comment goes like this. The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker seems like a barely cobbled together sentence about Luke getting out of bed. Sounds like Luke getting out of bed. The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker. It does sound like Luke Skywalker getting out of bed, doesn't it? Um, All right, moving on. I've been rambling for nearly an hour now, and I've just got like a couple of other things to do at the end here. Okay, I think this is going to be one episode. How are you, ladies and gents? Are you enjoying this ramble? I know it's been very specific. I've gone through sort of topics that... Ooh, I'd be lucky if I if I captured everyone's um, attention and agreement all the way through this episode. I feel like it's a minefield. Brexit and politics, oh dear. Talking about technical microphones and things, you're going to lose some people with that one. The rock music biography and the Beatles' sort of geeky re-release of one of their albums. And then Star Wars, Luke. Well, those of you who are still here... I'm glad that you are still here, ladies and gents, and I love you for continuing to listen through my uh, inane ramblings. And, um, you know, if you want content from me that is more to the point and succinct, then you could consider becoming a premium subscriber. I've recently started doing a series of uh, little pronunciation videos, which are just a few minutes long. And it's basically just a few sentences from previous pronunciation drill sections of previous premium episodes, um, five, six or seven sentences, drilled with attention to connected speech, weak forms, sentence stress, intonation, and how to say the sentences just like me. Um, And so that's fun. And I'm still doing those. There'll be another one of those coming this week. Um, That'll be the third one. So you can get that by going to uh, teacherluke.co.uk slash premium. And finally, I wanted to play some clips from this video, which I discovered uh, yesterday. I think it's a new 
video. This is a video of Bill Bailey, who I've talked about several times on this podcast. I did a whole episode about him. Was it one or two? Maybe it was two parts. I can't remember. Um, I think it was two parts. Uh, He's a stand-up comedian who specialises in using music in his comedy. And he's an excellent musician. He plays piano, guitar, all sorts of instruments. And he likes to deconstruct music. And I found this video on... Hold on. Okay, it's on um, Classic FM. Classic FM is a a radio station that you can find uh, in the UK and probably online, and they play classical music. And in this one, they interviewed Bill Bailey. They gave him 10 random questions, uh, and Bill chooses to answer the questions through music. So it's 10 random questions answered through music with Bill Bailey. And this is really interesting for me for several reasons. One, it's just really funny. And two, it's very insightful about music. And third, thirdly, there's lots of nice vocab in here. So um, I'm going to go through some little parts of this video with you before we end the episode. So I think we're going to start with the most beautiful melody. So the question is, um, what is the most beautiful melody? And let's just see how Bill answers this question with the use of his piano. No, it's a beautiful melody. It's difficult, isn't it? Um, I, I did for a while think uh, that it's, you know, Oh Mio Bobino Caro, you know, the Puccini uh, aria, you know, like... Uh, <clears throat> it's a beautiful uh, aria, but actually... When you're talking about the melody, if you take away the harmony, the melody isn't quite, it doesn't quite stand up, you know. It needs the harmony to give it sort of resonance. So, actually, I'm sort of thinking it possibly could be, and I know this sounds like it's such a cliche almost, and it's so well-known and well-revered, but, you know, Harold Arlen's beautiful melody, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, stands up on its own. straight away you know you get the sense of the song just from the melody and it's sort of it it the idea of this this big octave leap of the melody suggests leaping over a rainbow and it's sort of immediately sad drops down immediately from the octave and there's another little leap there sort of and it gradually comes down the whole octave. So it's a beautifully constructed, very simple melody, but it sort of it mimics, it, it suggests the the lyric um, in a in a in a beautiful way. Wow, that's really nice, don't you think? I, I just it struck me yesterday when I watched that that it's just a very eloquent way of describing uh, melody and you know listening to those two melodies. The first one is um, an aria from, I guess, an opera. Um, and we'll just listen to that little section again. I'm going to break it down now and just ex- sort of just repeat some of the things that you hear. When I break down audio like this on the podcast, sometimes I'm explaining. Sometimes I just repeat what the person said. And I expect that often that's enough, right, for you, that you might not be able to catch what the original person said. But when I repeat it, you're able to understand it. So sometimes I don't need to do much more than just repeat what's being said. But then there are times when I need to explain it too. So let's listen to him uh, answering that question about the most beautiful melody again, and we'll kind of break it down too. So, I, I mean, 
just before we do, the idea of the of a melody though is a an interesting one. When you think about melody in music, the melody is is such an important part of a song, and there are numerous memorable melodies. But a melody is an interesting thing. It kind of tells a little story rather than like harmony, which provides context. You know, harmonic chords and rhythm, which provides sort of a sense of tension or movement. But the melody is sort of giving you the main points of the story and so it does tell a little story as it goes up and down it goes here and there so it's interesting to consider a melody the first one that he plays i think is a really beautiful melody and i find it's actually more beautiful than the somewhere over the rainbow one um let's just hear what he says no it's a beautiful melody it's difficult isn't it um i i did for a while think uh, that it's, you know, oh, mio bobino caro, you know, the Puccini uh, aria, you know, like... Uh, <clears throat> it's a beautiful uh, aria, but actually, when you're talking about the melody, if you take away the harmony... The melody isn't quite... It doesn't quite stand up, you know. The melody doesn't, doesn't quite stand up. It's quite an interesting turn of phrase. If something stands up, it means it kind of... <clears throat> it can rest on its own. It doesn't need other things to support it. Now, in this case, he's talking about a melody that doesn't quite stand up on its own. But we also use the expression to talk about things that uh, are not really believable. So it doesn't really stand up as evidence you might say, meaning it's, it doesn't really, it won't function as evidence. And if you'd say someone's story doesn't really stand up, uh, it means that the story falls down, it's structurally something wrong with it, so that it's, it's probably not true. So anyway, the, the melody need, uh, needs the harmony, it doesn't really stand up on its own. Needs the harmony to give it sort of resonance. So actually, I'm sort of thinking it possibly could be Actually, I'm sort of thinking it possibly could be. That's quite a nice sentence, isn't it? It's not really a sentence, but um, I mean, if you're looking for phrases that we use when we're trying to think, there you go. Harmony to give it sort of resonance. So actually, I'm sort of thinking it possibly could be. And I know this sounds like it's such a cliche almost. I know this sounds like it's such a cliche. Cliche, obviously, something that's been done so many times is unoriginal. It's so well known and well revered. It's so well known and well revered. If something is revered, it means that like, you know, people consider it to be really great. They have very high opinions of it. He's talking about somewhere over the rainbow. It's kind of a cliche, but it is very well revered. But, you know, Harold Arlen's beautiful melody, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, stands up on its own. You know, straight away... You get the sense of the song just from the melody, and it's sort of it, it the idea of this this big octave leap. So a leap is basically a big jump. Okay, if you can imagine sort of leaping over a huge puddle on the ground, you'd have to leap forwards. So we talk about the octave leap, the doon doon. It leaps all the way up an octave. Of the melody suggests leaping over a rainbow, and it's sort of immediately sad drops down immediately from the octave. And there's another little leap there, sort of. 
and it gradually comes down the whole octave. So it's a beautifully constructed, very simple melody, but it sort of it mimics, it, it suggests the the lyric um, in a in a in a beautiful way. It mimics the lyric. So to mimic something is to kind of like um, in, do an impersonation of something, to copy something. And it suggests the, the lyric. It's um, just a nice little, uh, uh, for me, unexpected level of musical um, analysis that I got while I was eating my lunch yesterday that I wanted to share with you in the podcast today. There's more. The next question is basically, um, what is it? Uh, if your life was a piece of music, what would it be? If your life was a piece of music, what would it be? And I just love the way he answers this question by talking about parts of his life. You know, how he, he grew up in the countryside and it was a very idyllic kind of rural situation. Idyllic means kind of perfect and rural meaning in the countryside. So it was an idyllic rural um, upbringing. Um, and then the music, you know, he expresses this in this kind of floral sounding uh, rural or sounding music and then there's the sense that as you grow up you get more responsibilities and the music changes to to suit that and there he he has some very nice uh turns of phrase as well while he's explaining all of this i'll let listen to that now i think life is uh for my life's been i've been very lucky so um it started out with i, I think i was just playing earlier you know debussy's uh, larabesque and i think that's because it started with this sort of beautiful, kind of like a um, rural idyll that I lived in. I grew up in the countryside. And it was uh, sort of worry-free and um, sort of, you know, carefree. And I, uh, I grew up in lovely fields and the countryside. And then there's a sort of like... There's that moment in it which is a bit more serious. And that's when life takes on a little bit more... And then, uh, but now I'm back to full circle. I'm enjoying the natural world more. So I'd say perhaps that. Absolutely brilliant. I have to say, the man is is a legend. Uh, let's just listen to that little bit again, because it's just worth just taking a little bit of time, you know, just going sl- fairly slowly and listening to these little bits again. So he said it was a an idyll, a rural idyll. Um, I-D-Y-L-L is how you spell that. An extremely happy, peaceful or picturesque period or situation, usually in the countryside. Okay, Uh, so a lovely, perfect little rural um, place that he grew up in. Um, I think life is, uh, for my life's been, I've been very lucky. So um, it started out with, I, I think I was just playing earlier... It started out with, and then he says, I think as I was playing earlier, and then he quickly runs through a bit of Debussy, I think, that he was playing earlier. He plays it fairly quickly because he's he's not really performing it. He's just more sort of, you know, just bringing it up. You know, Debussy's uh, Larabesque. And I think that's because it started with this sort of beautiful kind of like a um, rural idyll that I lived in. I grew up in the countryside. Uh, sort of worry-free and um, sort of, you know, carefree. And I uh, I grew up in lovely fields and the countryside. And then there's a sort of like... There's that moment in it which is a bit more serious. And that's when life takes on a little bit more... 
And that's when life takes on a bit more responsibility. If you take something on, it's like you, you know, you, you carry it uh, with you. It's when life takes on a bit more responsibility. And then, uh, but now I'm back to full circle. I'm enjoying the natural world more. So I'd say perhaps that. I think that's just beautiful. I think just the two themes, um, the the rural one and then the more serious one, and then back to the rural rural one. It just seems to be like a lovely little story. And that rural music <laughs> reminds me of the Legend of Zelda, actually. The natural world more. So I'd say perhaps that. Um, now, my favourite one that he does is uh, answering the question: What is the sound of London? Right. What does London sound like? I'm just, yeah, here it is. What is the sound of London? Okay. Now, this is brilliant because it does showcase Bill Bailey's talent and he's got it spot on, I think. So imagine London, right? I don't know if you know the city, if you've been there, if you've lived there and worked there, but just think of London. What music for you defines London? Now, how would you, what is the sound of London? Some of you will be thinking it's all kind of like pompous, like old-fashioned, maybe like a royal national anthem, pom-pom, you know, like kind of, uh, duh, you know, like God Save the Queen. Duh, 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 duh. That kind of thing is probably what some of you are thinking of. But don't forget that London is not just the tourist place that you know it as. That London is, uh, the beating heart of London is probably in the city where there's people doing business and there's also a thriving arts scene and, you know, lots of artists and commentators, journalists, writers, and um, just everything, industry. And it's a very vibrant place. So how would you um, put that into music? Well, let's listen to how Bill Bailey does it. We'll listen once and then we'll probably break it down again. And then I expect that will be the end of the episode. Okay, so what is the sound of London? Sound of London. Well, London is is always moving. It's restless, you know. It's got a kind of pulse to it. Um, and... Uh sort of a, a it's quite cool as well it's quite stylish timeless London so I always, I always think of London as you know it's kind of like a slightly dissonant but also I don't know, a cool almost like a jazz vibe to it perhaps I could even um, uh, appropriate some sort of jazz piano sounds here one of the uh, electric size uh, well how about this oh yeah there we go see It's a bit innovative, so of course you sometimes get something. You know, you can get that sort of thing. London's quite sort of contemplative sometimes, but mainly it's the rhythm. <laughs> um, he does a funny face at the end when it kind of changes and goes serious. Again, that's just brilliant. I, I've, I've never heard anything like it, I have to say. Someone interpreting the sound of London in such a way, and, and it makes total sense to me. It is kind of hip and cool and quite serious and a bit avant-garde and all these things, you know? So it do, it's, it's right that he's got that kind of avant-garde jazz sort of thing going on. And then the other weird, uh, those strange chords, ambient-sounding stuff, which is 
he, he kind of makes you think of the contemplative side of the city. Just wonderful. And some nice vocab. Let's go through that again. Sound of London. Well, London is, is always moving. It's restless. You know. Right. London's always moving, we understand. London is restless, which is a nice phrase to feel restless feels like you know you're 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 not able to relax you kind of uh, you've got a bit too much energy right so if you imagine like lying in bed with someone who's restless they might be kind of tossing and turning in bed moving around and stuff and being generally restless london is a restless place always moving there's always this hum this kind of sound of like just london moving and doing things um and yeah so london's always moving it's restless you know it's got a kind of pulse to it it's got a kind of pulse to it. Pulse is obviously the sound of a heartbeat, right? That's a pulse. But it's a, a pulse can also just be a regular sort of a rhythm, okay? Just a, this regular driving rhythm, like a heartbeat. Um, and... Uh... sort of a, a it's quite cool as well it's quite stylish timeless london so always always think of london as it's cool it's it's stylish it's uh, timeless he said right which is you know that sense that it's kind of got this something that about it that will never age uh like certain kinds of classical music or arguably you know maybe the beatles is timeless because i mean abbey road came out again this year and it immediately went to number one so they appeal of the Beatles appears to be timeless, but London is, yeah, it's kind of cool and timeless. You know, it's kind of like slightly dissonance. Dissonance uh, is um, basically when, uh, like, notes are played together that don't really go together. So it's like a lack of harmony. It's the opposite of harmony. And sometimes dissonance can be used in music to create a sort of edgy feeling or exactly a sense of dissonance of things crashing together and and stuff, like he says. Think of London as, you know, it's kind of like a slightly dissonance, but also you know, a cool, almost like a jazz vibe to it. Perhaps I could even um, uh, appropriate some sort of jazz piano sounds here. Uh, to appropriate something is to basically kind of take it and use it for yourself. So he's just reprogramming his, his keyboard to get some of those uh, cheesy uh, electric piano sounds. It's something like a Rhodes piano simulator. Yeah, one of the uh, electric size. Uh, well, how about this? Oh, yeah, there we go. See? And then, of course, it's a bit innovative. So, of course, you know, sometimes you get... Okay, so ladies and gents, uh, thank you for joining me on this mega ramble that I've been doing for the last hour and 20 minutes. It's been enjoyable. It's been emotional. I feel, um, I feel like maybe I've touched some of you out there. If, if, if you feel like you've been touched by me, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's just my arm brushed, just my arm brushed up against you there when I was just, um, just trying to, uh, change the volume on the mixer and sorry. So if I have touched anyone, I'm, I do apologize. Okay. Uh, an official apology, um, is in order. I'm sorry. Okay. Don't roast me on Twitter or whatever it is that you people do these days. Um, so thank you again for listening.
Uh, if you'd like to get uh, more content from me, then you could sign up to LEP Premium. It's really simple. Teacherluke.co.uk slash premium. Sign up and you'll get access to all of the premium content, including those pronunciation videos and all the other normal premium episodes I'm doing. Premium Series 17 is coming uh, this week, I expect. So if you want to get it, just get it. It's easy, simple. It's about the price of about a coffee a month from you to me, which is not a lot. And there's tons of stuff in there now. I've got loads of episodes. I think it's more than 50, I think. Yeah, I think you'll find. I can't even remember. It's maybe even 60. Um, spread out across about 16 series of episodes with loads of good stuff. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Thank you for listening, folks. You're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. And I hope you have a lovely day or morning or night or evening, uh, um, whatever it is you're doing, wherever you are in the world. And I'll speak to you again in the next episode of Luke's English Podcast. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Lord, I'm a rambling man. Don't fool around with a rambling man. Hello, so this is a little Easter egg here at the end. This is actually not the end of the episode. I've decided to do a little Easter egg because actually I wanted to go through the trailer for the new Star Wars film, the new trailer, I actually intended to do that in the episode, but I just got so caught up in whatever it was I was talking about that I forgot to do it. But I think I can just do it now at the end. So this is where I'm actually going to go through the new trailer, uh, sort of bit by bit. We'll listen to it and I'll talk a little bit about uh, little things, little theories and stuff. And then that will be the end of the episode properly. So here we go. We start on what sounds like the forest moon of Endor, not the moon forest of Endor, Luke. What are you talking about? The forest moon of Endor, it looks like. You can hear the sound of the forest. And then suddenly uh, a helmet drops to the ground and it looks like maybe a sort of a training helmet or maybe um, one of the helmets that the, they used to use when they were doing those like uh, speeders through the forest in Return of the Jedi. You know, the pilots of those speeders had certain helmets. It looks kind of like one of those or maybe a helmet that a Jedi trainee would use. Is that the right word? Trainee? Intern? In, the Jedi intern uh, might use one of those to do training. So there's going to be a little bit of noise as the helmet drops to the ground. And then we see Ray running through the forest with a lightsaber. And it looks like she's training with one of those like training droids that you see in Star Wars. It's like a little globe that shoots red lasers. And it looks like she's sort of defending herself against one of these things. So it looks like a training sequence on the forest moon of Endor or another similarly forested uh, place. It's an instinct. It's an instinct. Now, I wasn't sure who this was at the beginning saying it's an instinct, but I think it's Poe, and he think I think he's talking about his friendship with Ray. So we see Ray sort of jumping during what could be training on a forest planet somewhere, and then it cuts to her jumping inside the remains of some kind of uh, spaceship, uh, a bit like in uh, episode seven, when she was like uh, climbing around inside uh, the remains of a star destroyer. I think that she might be in the, in the uh, second Death Star at this point, kind of climbing around doing something. We don't know what she's doing. Feeling. The force brought us together. 
the force brought us together. This is uh, Finn, and he's kind of um, with some of the others, and they're staring off into the distance, looking at something. We're not alone. So this is Poe now, the ace pilot who's sort of becoming a leader of the rebellion. He's saying, is it the rebellion or the resistance, isn't it? It's the resistance. We're not alone. So he's giving a sort of rousing speech here, which also suggests that there's probably more uh, members of the resistance than there, there were at the end of the last film, because it was really just a handful of people on the Millennium Falcon. I think this film takes place two years after so there are probably other people that have sort of come in, including Lando Calrissian, who we can see sitting in the middle of the picture. Uh, so I think there's probably more now to the resistance. They've gathered together all the disparate uh, bands of rebels from around the, the universe. Good people will fight if we lead them. People keep telling me they know me. People keep telling me they know me. And this is Ray talking. People keep telling me they know me. And and you can see uh, images of her um, walking across what could be remains of the second Death Star uh, with big waves crashing against it. So she's walking along saying, people tell me, people keep telling me they know me. No one does. But no one does. And she's standing there on... I mean, it looks a bit like a submarine being smashed by waves, but I think it's part of the second Death Star. Remains of it. But I do. But I do. So um, this is uh, Kylo saying, I know you. So we still don't know the relationship between Rey and Kylo. I mean, is it is it interesting? Is it not interesting? Mm, it's curious. I mean, there was a suggestion in the, in the last one, there was like sort of weird sexual tension between the two of them. But maybe it's going to be revealed in classic Star Wars fashion that actually they're brother and sister. So it'd be, oh, that's awkward. Remember that scene where he's kind of topless? Oh, no, that's a bit awkward. They're actually brother and sister. You know, you need a little bit of sort of possible incest in a show, don't you? I mean, that's that was the appeal of uh, Game of Thrones, wasn't it? Largely. In the, certainly in the beginning, it's like, oh, a bit of sort of <clears throat> sexy incest stuff going on. But there's always been a little hint of that in Star Wars, but never too much. So anyway, I don't know what's going on between the two of them. You know, no people keep telling me they know who I am, but uh, no one knows who I am. And Kylo's like, but I know. All right. I know who you are. I know what you want. You want, uh, actually, I don't know what you want. What do you want, Ray? What does Ray really want? She just wants to defeat the bad guys and learn who she is. Okay. Let's, let's, good luck with that. There's Kylo Ren looking pretty cool. He looks like a, uh, a samurai or something. And then we have footage of like loads of TIE fighters flying through what looks like a frozen place. And then a picture of a big throne. And this looks like maybe the Emperor's new throne. I don't think the the thing about the Ewoks I was talking about, I don't think that's going to come true, unfortunately. But there's there's a big throne. Could be the Emperor's throne. Long have I waited. Long have I waited. So there you go. You see the Emperor using uh, an inversion, right? Long, long have I waited. You see, the Emperor's very strong in the Force. I mean, I think he's much stronger than Yoda because, you know, as we know, Yoda, it's not that strong because you can't lift the verb into the middle of the sentence. But um, 
the emperor is kind of uh, doing all sorts of uh, clever sentence structure here and, and using the old, uh, you know, inversion there. Long have I waited. Long have I waited. I can't really do the emperor. Long have I waited. Can't do it. The only line of the emperors that I can do is when he, I think, I'm not sure he says this, but he says something like this. He says, oh, I think you'll find this battle station is fully operational. He says something like that in Return of the Jedi. You know, he kind of starts like this. Oh, I think you'll find, young Master Jedi, that this battle station is fully operational. (laughs) You know, going from this kind of thing to this sort of thing. Um, I might try and use that sometimes at work, maybe, you know, if someone doesn't do their homework. Oh, I think you'll find that you'll be doing your homework all weekend. I don't know how that would go down. But anyway, uh, what is it? Long have I waited. Long have I waited. Long have I waited. It's like that, isn't it? Waited. Long have I waited. That's how the Emperor speaks. Long have I waited for this moment. It's sort of like this, isn't it? It's like his tongue is stuck to the bottom of his mouth and he can't move it. My tongue is stuck to the bottom of my mouth and I can't move it. (laughs) That's how you do an Emperor impression. Stick the tongue to the bottom of your mouth. Stick your tongue to the bottom of your mouth. And now you're coming together. And now you're coming together. Now that's this is interesting from a grammatical point of view again, of course, because we're dealing with the emperor here. So he has immaculate grammar. Uh, you, and now you're coming together. Now that sounds to me like he's saying, and now you are coming together. So he's talking, we see images of like the team together, Poe and Finn and Ray and Chewbacca. And now you're coming together. Um, it sounds like you are coming together, but no, it's not. Because as we hear from the rest of the sentence, he actually says, now you're coming together, like you're the possessive pronoun, which is an interesting bit of sentence structure. Now you're coming together. And what? Uh, what is, how does he conclude the sentence? You're coming together. Your coming together is your undoing. Your coming together is your undoing. So it's the possessive pronoun, your. And you can do that. You can do a possessive pronoun plus an ing, right? Um, And uh, that becomes a sort of like a noun. Sorry for my asking, uh, you know, like, sorry for my interrupting, but do you have blah, 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 you know? Uh, I hope you don't mind my asking, you see. So it's like, I hope you don't mind something. And that something can be my doing something. I hope you don't mind my smoking in the office. As the emperor might say, you know, I I hope you don't mind my smoking in the office. (laughs) Uh, No, no, go ahead. Go right ahead. Uh, Please be my guest, you know. Um, So, yes, there you go. So um, you're coming together 
will be your end. Now, who's coming together? Does he mean the coming together of the team? Of Ray and uh, Finn and Poe and uh, Lala and Tinky Winky and... Uh, oh, no, that that's the Teletubbies, isn't it? Sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, who? Or does he mean Ray and Kylo? Because maybe Ray and Kylo are going to team up to try and defeat the Emperor. I've no idea what's going to happen, and I can't wait to find out. What, uh, what are you doing there, 3PO? What are you doing? Uh, uh, naturalistic, uh, naturalistic dialogue. Uh, uh, naturalistic delivery of uh, naturalistic dialogue. Uh, that's how you do naturalistic dialogue. You just do a kind of, just like you're kind of giving away the lines just without really thinking about it. You know, just naturally. I suppose, I guess I'm just going to make a cup of tea if uh, anyone wants some. What are you, what you doing there, 3PO? So, uh, what you doing there? That's how you do naturalistic dialogue. What, uh, what are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir. At my friends. Ooh. What are you, uh, so, uh, what you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir. At my friends. So what's going to happen to 3PO? Are we going to sacrifice 3PO uh, or something? Or maybe 3PO is just extremely pessimistic before the mission that they're about to go on. And he's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just going to take I'm just taking last, one last look at my friends because you're all going to die. Um, maybe he's being very pessimistic. Or maybe 3PO is going to somehow be um, sacrificed here. Now, they've kind of hooked him up. They've, like, attached an Ethernet cable to the back of his head or something. They've hooked him up to the Matrix. Maybe what they're going to do is somehow use C-3PO's memory, memory banks, in order to, like, locate the Emperor or something like that. I don't know, but they're going to use 3PO because he's been there sort of from the start. He was there with Anakin, obviously, in Episode 1, and then he's followed all of this all the way through the whole thing. Him and R2-D2 as well. So... Maybe he's got, like, uh, memory banks and stuff. Maybe he's seen things they need to access. So and maybe that's going to destroy his memory in the process. We don't know. But can't they just, can't they just back him up to, a, to, like, an external hard drive and then do that? They don't have to wipe his memory, do they? Uh... This Christmas. So there was, like, awesome-looking sequence there of um, like our heroes running through what looks like a big battle station or something and shooting loads of stormtroopers. It's like real Star Wars nostalgia in overdrive. Like a, a corridor that looks exactly like something out of um, uh, the Death Star from the original Star Wars. And you've got Chewbacca and Poe and Tinky Winky and La La and the other Teletubbies running through the... Um, this set with like stormtroopers falling on the floor it's classic star wars and then we see princess leia i don't know as i said before somehow they're gonna fit her into the film with old footage but uh, she's there hugging ray confronting fear it's the destiny of a jedi and that's luke skywalker with new dialogue confronting fear is the destiny of a jedi confronting fear it's the destiny of a jedi so I get, um, what's this? Is this Luke Skywalker as a force ghost giving giving Rey a kind of a motivational pep talk? You know, like, I know that you're really scared. I know that it's the Emperor and he's like the most powerful. You know, he does that lightning thing. Ah, and it's really horrible. And he sort of speaks like this. You know, it's he's horrible. So you must be 
absolutely filling your trousers on this one, Ray. So, but just remember that uh, confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi, which basically means you, you've got no choice. You've got to do it or we will cut your legs off with a lightsaber because that's, you know, it's the thing about being a Jedi. You can't just leave. You, you can't, you know, we're not just going to let you leave. You have to face uh, the Emperor. Sorry. destiny so your destiny so apparently well ray is a jedi is she the last jedi we i still don't really understand the title of the previous film but then we get shots of like awesome battle sequences i'm sure there will be big action set pieces there's uh shots of spaceships flying through space and different types of thing there's a there's a shot of like some horses riding across what looks like a star destroyer is that possible are they on the top of a Star Destroyer, a big load of horses? I mean, this is a Disney production, so obviously they've got to try and get some horseback riding in there somehow. Maybe there's a princess, another princess involved in this. Uh, we don't know yet. But uh, horses, okay. I mean, that's uh, for those people who didn't like the horse-based sequence in the previous film, they will not be happy to see the reappearance of, of some sort of equine element uh, in this film. Um, what else is going to happen? The saga will end, it says... I can't wait to see what happens. How are they going to end this? What kind of botched job are they going to do on this? Uh, I can't wait. Right, so there's a really, really interesting clip there. So we see Ray and Kylo in this weird white room. It looks like nothing we've ever seen before. Maybe something from the original Death Star, but it's all white and super Star Wars-y in its design. But it's all white. Normally they're kind of grey, aren't they? Uh, those Imperial spaceships. And they appear to be maybe having a, 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 a lightsaber fight in this environment. Ray is in her normal gear. Kylo is in his normal stuff, but he's got his helmet on. This is the helmet that he's repaired. I don't know why he didn't just get a new helmet. But he's repaired this one after he smashed it in the last film. And they're, they're maybe fighting or something. And then there's this, what looks like a big sort of statue made of black glass or something. And it's, you don't see it very, very long. It's a very quick clip. And it could be like Darth Vader, like a statue of Darth Vader or something. But it quickly gets smashed by their lightsabers. I think either they both smash it or they're fighting and they smash it by accident. And maybe what this is, is it's a sort of a statue maybe holding uh, Darth Vader's helmet. Because remember, Kylo Ren had Vader's helmet and he was worshipping it and he had it on like a little bed of stones. It was quite a nice little stone garden he'd built for it. Maybe now it's on this kind of glass plinth, but it seems to be that the uh, maybe Vader's helmet is, is involved here again somehow, and it gets broken, maybe um, smashed or something. Maybe what's got happened with the Emperor is that he maybe he transformed, he, he, he transferred his uh, force essence to Vader's helmet. Because you remember when Vader throws him over the balcony, uh, you see his skull kind of full of, ele full of electricity and stuff. Maybe uh, the Emperor's Force spirit went into the helmet. And so that's the kind of driving force, the evil force that's been sort of pushing all of this forwards. We don't know. So maybe the helmet's going to make a recurrence. And then like scenes of a massive space fight. And then were a very, very weird shot of like Ray standing on the ground and then we're looking over the shoulder of what looks like the emperor because you see like the black cloak and the hood 
uh, but maybe he's riding on some kind of big armored suit or a big uh, chair that moves or something, but he appears to be moving towards her and she's like walking backwards and he's laughing. Now, is this the emperor and and a special body suit or something? Um, Or uh, in the previous trailer, there was a shot of Ray as a kind of evil um, sort of uh, Sith version of Ray, and she's got like a red double-bladed lightsaber. So I wonder if I wonder how that fits into all of this. Is that just a vision of what would happen if she turned to the dark side, or does she actually turn to the dark side in this? Uh, and is this um, the Emperor that we're seeing, or is this maybe a uh, dark ray or something? What's going to happen? The Force will be with you always. So the force will be with you always. And that's Luke Skywalker saying the force will be with you. And then Princess Leia saying always. And you see Ray's face. She's got her lightsaber and maybe she's crying and she's probably about to do battle with something. So any, anyway, there you go. I suppose Ray is building up to some big confrontation. Maybe she's going to try and take down the emperor. Maybe she's going to take down the emperor and Kylo or with Kylo. I wonder what's going to happen. And I'm looking forward to it. It could be a huge disappointment. We never know. Uh, there's more to the trailer. What, what's the rest of this here? I could probably just talk over the top. Of a big blue Star Wars slowly disappearing into space. The Rise of Skywalker. There we go. That That's the end. December 20. Tickets available now. So there you go. I will be going to see that, of course. And I'll probably talk about it at nauseating length on the podcast. But uh, until, well, until next time, I shall bid you farewell. And I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. This really is the end of the episode now. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, But for now, goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.